Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, first book in the Bible. So Genesis chapter 2, and we'll be reading verse 21 through 25 for scripture reading today. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Amen. So a few years ago, I was approached by a woman from our community who wanted me to be the minister at her wedding. But it was a different kind of wedding that she wanted. She said that she wanted a wedding without a marriage license from the state. She said that a marriage license is just a piece of paper. But she said that she and the man that she was living with didn't need a piece of paper to be married in the eyes of God. After all, they loved each other. They were committed under God to to each other. And so, pastor, she asked, could you marry us and pronounce God's blessing upon our union even if we do not get a marriage license? So let me take a quick survey here. How many of you think I said yes to her request? How many of you think I said no? Okay, the no's have it. The reason I said no has to do with the essence of marriage. We've been looking at the subject of marriage for four weeks now from Ephesians chapter 5. And in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 31, uh, Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2 about the essence of marriage. Paul goes back to the very first marriage in history, the marriage of Adam and Eve, to speak about the essential nature of marriage. And the essence of marriage that we discover is that marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a binding commitment, a promise of future love to your spouse. And a marriage license is a binding document of the covenant, the promise made by a man and a woman before God. Since a marriage license states the binding nature of the covenant that a couple has made, I will not perform a wedding without a license. The essence of marriage is covenant. To do without a license, to say a license is just a piece of paper, is to deny that marriage is a binding covenant. And when someone says to me, I I don't need a piece of paper, what they are really telling me is, that my love for my fiancé has not yet reached the marriage level. I am not yet ready to get married because I am not yet willing to make a covenant. Since marriage is a covenant, let's examine from Genesis chapter 2 today what kind of a covenant marriage is. First of all, marriage is a covenant of duty. The story of the first marriage begins with God surgically removing one of Adam's ribs in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 21. And from that rib, God creates a woman in Genesis 2 
and verse 22, and he, he brings that woman to Adam. God takes the role then of the father of the bride at the first wedding, and he gives away Eve to Adam. The fact that God made Eve for Adam reveals that we as human beings are social beings. Like God says in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. We were made for fellowship, for a sense of communion with other human beings and with God. And what does it say that God made Eve from Adam's rib? I like what Matthew Henry has written about this passage where he says, The woman is not made out of his head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. I also like what Umberto Casuto has written about Eve being taken from Adam's rib. Just as the rib is found at the side of the man and is attached to him, even so the good wife, the rib of her husband, stands at his side to be his helper counterpart, and her soul is bound up with his. The husband and wife are bound together as a fellowship of equals, helping one another. But where do we see in Genesis chapter 2 that marriage is a covenant? I'd like you to focus on two words that are used both in Genesis 2 and in Ephesians 5. They are the words leave and hold fast. In the verse in Genesis 2.24, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So what kind of a commitment is a husband making to his wife in marriage? What promise is he making in a covenant to his wife? First, the husband promises to leave his parents. Now, this was not literally true. In Jewish weddings, a a son would add a room onto his father's house, his parents' house, after he got engaged. And then he would Once he was finished with the room, he would bring his bride home to that room, and they would live there together in that room connected to his father's house. And so in what sense, then, did a son leave his parents when he got married? He did not abandon his parents. He didn't say, I want nothing more to do to you, with you. Rather, as soon as the son got married, his priorities changed. Before he got married, his first obligation, his first duty, was to his parents. But as soon as that young man married, his first obligation was now to his wife. That was his new duty. That was the promise every husband made to his wife at his wedding. No one on earth comes before you. Second, the husband in his covenant promises to hold fast to his wife. These words, hold fast, are frequently translated with the word cleave in some versions of the Bible. And so the husband's two responsibilities in his covenant were to leave 
and to cleave. The word cleave means to be united to someone. This word cleave literally means to be glued together. The husband then promises to be stuck to his wife. He's not going anywhere. He is stuck to her. Not in a bad way, church, okay? But in in a good way, he is stuck to his wife through a covenant, a binding promise, or an oath. And the husband is not just making a covenant with his wife at the marriage ceremony. Who else is he making a covenant with? God. In Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 17, we read about an adulterous wife who forgets the covenant of her God. To break a covenant promise with your spouse is also to break a covenant promise with God. Every Sunday at church, I say something which makes you wonder, wow, just how old is this pastor anyway? This pastor is not just old school, he's prehistoric practically. And so, as a public service announcement, let me say, here's the part of the sermon where I get very old school. I prefer traditional wedding vows to vows that the couples write for themselves. That's just me. Why? It's not because couples today are writing weird vows, although some of them are a little bit weird. It's not because these vows are not moving or very well written. Some of the vows that are written by couples themselves are are very moving, and they are indeed well written. The problem that I have with couples writing vows for themselves is that these vows are almost always about their love for each other today. When I hear couples talk about their love for each other today on their wedding day, The cranky old curmudgeon in me says, well, of course you love each other today. You wouldn't be getting married to each other if you hated each other, would you? And so my problem then with self-written vows is that the couple is almost always saying, I love you today. But I believe that wedding vows are a promise of future love. That's what vows are about, that I will love you in the future, not just for today. They are a binding covenant, then, to stick to your duty to love your spouse no matter what happens in the future. I will love you when you get sick. I will love you in those times when my feelings for you decline. I will love you when we get into financial difficulty. I will love you when all of your adorable quirks start driving me crazy. (laughs) I will always love you no matter what. I am stuck to you today. And no matter what happens, I will be stuck to you until one of us dies. That's the promise the binding covenant that I am making to you today. I will love you in the future. So let me here speak a word of comfort to those of you who are divorced. 
Obviously, by saying in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 that the two will become one flesh, God is saying that marriage is to be permanent. If two people are glued together by covenant, it's going to do some serious damage to unglue them. It's going to cause some serious pain. But in our culture, of course, divorce is common. And so many of you who are here today did not want a divorce, but you are the victim of a divorce. You are the innocent party in a divorce that you did not want. If that describes you, I want to let you know that you are in good company today. Do you know who else is the victim of a divorce? That would be God. In Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 8, God says that he got a divorce from Israel because of her adultery. God then knows the pain of divorce. God has been there. And God will be there to comfort you as you go through the pain of your own divorce. One of the reasons why I believe that divorce is so common is because people do not see marriage today as a covenant. They don't understand that the essence of marriage is that it is a covenant. They instead see marriage as a consumer good. Sometimes I have heard women describe their divorce in these words. My husband traded me in for a newer model. Have you ever heard a a woman say that about her divorce? Such husbands do not believe that they have a duty to fulfill a covenant that they have made with their wife. Instead, they are acting like typical consumers who treat their wives like this picture that I brought with me today. They are treating their wives like what? A used car that they can trade in. Now, a consumer stays connected to a product only as long as that consumer product meets their needs at an acceptable cost to them. But what happens when you treat your spouse like a used car? What happens when you treat your spouse like a consumer good? When the relationship appears to require more love and affirmation from us than we are getting back, We cut our losses and we end the relationship. It doesn't matter at that point what kind of covenant promises we have made to our spouses. We've just got to get out. How far that is from God's desire for our marriages. We have seen from Ephesians chapter 5 in these weeks that marriage is not really about us. Marriage is not really about a husband and a wife. Marriage instead is about Christ's love for his church. And Jesus has certainly made a covenant with us. Jesus has promised to be faithful to us forever. And he has been faithful. He has always stuck by our side. He will never leave us or forsake us. He will always be our loving husband. So what does God want from us 
as husbands and wives in his church. He wants us to do our duty. He wants us to keep the covenant promises that we have made in our wedding vows before God. Because as we do our duty, as we keep our covenants, God is revealed as the faithful and loving husband that he truly is before a watching world. A man and a woman, then, are never more like God than on their wedding day when they commit themselves unconditionally to one another. Marriage is a covenant, and it is a covenant of duty. Marriage, though, also is a covenant of desire. If marriage were only about duty, it would become drudgery pretty quickly. Good morning, dearest. Here I am reporting for my duty today. What are my orders? That would become very painful very quickly. But we have to see that marriage is not just about duty, it is also about desire. It's true that there is a duty within the covenant of marriage that we need to fulfill. There is a a should that we need to do. Paul himself says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 28, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. This is a husband's duty. But the covenant that we make with our spouses is, is not just about duty, It is also about desire. We make these promises to each other in marriage because we desire one another. We delight in one another. Where do we see the desire in Genesis chapter 2? We first see the desire in Adam. After God, as the father of the bride, has marched Eve down the aisle to him. Adam bursts out in a poem in verse 23. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Notice these two words, at last. Because I am prehistoric, I remember a song with that title, at last. If you know the song by Etta James, you know that it is a song of desire fulfilled. It's a song about lonely days being over and dreams coming true. It's a song about being in relationship heaven, for you are mine at last. Adam knew what Etta James was talking about. When Adam saw Eve, his first response to her was, at last. God had been bringing the animals to Adam to name them in Genesis chapter 2. The conclusion to the naming ceremony is found in Genesis 2 and verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Adam had no one like him to relate to. Adam had no one to talk to. He had no one to share with. 
He was completely alone. But then God marched Eve down the aisle to Adam. At last. Eve was the fulfillment of all that Adam needed and desired. Adam wasn't forced into marrying Eve out of a sense of duty. Adam desired to marry Eve. She was his joy. She was his delight. She was a part of him. She was literally bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. They had that connection, that communion, that fellowship from the very beginning of their relationship. And that oneness was expressed between them in the delight and in the desire of their sexual relationship. We read in verse 24 that in marriage, a husband and a wife become one flesh. They are not just one emotionally and spiritually, although they certainly are. They are also one physically. This is the way that marriage should be a covenant of delight and desire. But if you watch today's movies and TV shows, where is all the delight and the desire when it comes to sex? Is the desire and the delight found within marriage, or is the desire and delight found outside of marriage? Our culture says that it's found outside of marriage. That's where the true delight and the true sparks fly. That's where it comes. But I'd like for you to think about that for a moment. When unmarried couples are having sex, they are trying to impress each other and entice each other. They are putting on a performance. Now, some people, they don't care how their performance is perceived by their partner. But other people care very much. They are hoping that their performance will lead to a continuing relationship. But who knows if the relationship will indeed continue. They don't know, but they hope that it does. To me, all of this sounds very stressful. It sounds like you're putting a lot of pressure on the relationship at that point. It does not sound like a relationship that is delightful. I much prefer what is said about Adam and Eve's marriage relationship in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Sex was not a performance for Adam and Eve. They were completely at ease with one another. They were naked with each other, not just in the sense that they wore no clothes. Because they had made a covenant with one another, they were able to be completely open and honest with each other. They were open then. They were naked in their trust. They were naked in their honesty with each other. They never had to perform for each other. They knew that no matter what, they would stick together. So there was no pressure then in the sexual relationship. They could simply express their delight and their desire for one another in ways that brought one another pleasure. 
remember the first time that you fell in love? When you first fall in love with another person, you think that you love the person, but you don't really. Actually, you are more in love with a fantasy at that point than a real live human being. You don't know the person well enough to say that you truly love them. But when over the years, someone has seen you at your worst with all of your flaws, as well as with all of your strengths, and that person is completely committed to you in a covenant of marriage, that is an incredible experience. To be loved but not known is comforting, but it's rather superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved by a human being in marriage is a lot like being loved by God. That's what we need more than anything, to be fully known and yet truly loved. And that is what marriage is supposed to be. But marriage can only be an experience where we are fully known and truly loved in the context of a covenant of duty and desire. It's desire that might first lead you to make a covenant in marriage. But then the promise of keeping that covenant of duty over the years makes the passion that you enjoy in your marriage much richer and much deeper. Since every human marriage is a picture of Jesus' love for his bride, the church, you would expect Jesus to have made a covenant of duty and delight to his bride as well. And as we close today, I want you to see that Jesus has made such a covenant with us. Let's look first at Jesus' words to his disciples on the night before he died in Luke chapter 22, verses 15 and 16. Let's read these words together out loud. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So Jesus speaks here on the night before he dies about his serious desire, his earnest desire. And you might think that his desire is simply to celebrate the Passover holiday. But Jesus' desire is actually tied up in his people, his bride. He has earnestly desired to eat this Passover, he says, with you. I want to be with you. You are my desire as my people. And he desires to be with his people, not just for this Passover. Like all lovers, Jesus is desiring and thinking about forever. That's what Jesus wants, to be with his bride forever. He wants to share and celebrate this Passover for all eternity with his bride in the kingdom of God. Jesus clearly has a passion for his bride. But it was the covenant of duty that kept Jesus nailed to the cross on the very next day. 
On that day, Jesus saw each and every one of us from the cross. And Jesus did not sacrifice himself for us because we were so beautiful to him on that day. No, it was our rebellion, it was our sin, it was our ugliness that nailed Jesus to the cross. At that moment, Jesus knew every ugly thing about us. He knew our betrayal. He knew our sin. He knew that we had abandoned him. But you know what Jesus did? He stayed. He stayed on that cross, even though as God he could have gotten down from that cross. He stayed for us so that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. He stayed because he had made a covenant of duty. He stayed not because we were lovely to him, but in order to make us lovely. And because Jesus stayed, we can stay in our marriages too. We can stay and become lovely because Jesus gives us the power to keep our covenant of duty and desire. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that marriage is a covenant. It is a covenant of duty and desire where we are stuck to our spouse in a relationship of love and of duty and of desire. I pray for your people who are struggling with their marriages today. I pray that you would empower them to keep their covenant. And I pray that as we do keep our covenants in our marriages, that Jesus might be glorified as the faithful and loving spouse that he is. In your great name we pray, amen.